we come to consider this um, this uh, astounding series of little stories together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will remove all distractions from our minds and hearts, all the things that usually busy our our thoughts. Help us to focus now on Christ. Help us to hear the questions that so many people brought to him, but most importantly, to hear his answers. And may they be words not just going into our ears, but may our lives be changed and transformed by the wisdom of Christ, the love of Christ, and the sacrifice of Christ. We pray all of this through the power of the Spirit and in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Can God make a rock so big that even God can't lift it up? Uh, This was one of the questions thrown to me on one of my first days as a scripture teacher when I started out in ministry so many years ago. And as I sat there thinking which way you answer, if you say no, then God's not all-powerful. If you say yes, then God's not all-powerful. And there are the cool kids sitting at the back thinking, yes, we've got the new scripture teacher again. Or to put the same question in um, Homer Simpson's words, asking to Ned Flanders, can God microwave a burrito so hot that he himself could not eat it? It's the same question. But it's really not a question at all. It's one of these questions that is just there as a distraction, as a smokescreen, a question to make a fool out of you, but I'm not interested in the answer at all. I wonder if you've encountered questions like that, that someone throws into the discussion more to move things aside so they don't have to truly think about who Jesus is. Or a question that's thrown out there just to block the discussion or conversation going any further and taking it away from the deep things of Christ and thrown out there just to, just to be a bit of a block. As we come to Mark chapter 11 and 12, you might remember if you were with us last week, we're into the final week of Jesus' life. He spent each day moving from a little town called Bethany into the main city, which was very busy, uh, Jerusalem, and he goes in and out day by day. His centre of operation in Jerusalem is the temple. That's where all the pilgrims are and it's where the religious leaders are. So he goes there, he teaches, he talks, and then he goes back to Bethany each night. And we're midway through day three, so we're following straight on from last week. And now it's the turn of the religious leaders to come to Jesus. They come one by one, like little groups of hyenas, all trying to take their bite of Christ. And they throw these questions, but the questions are not questions. They're traps. They're traps knowing that whichever way Jesus answers on each one of them, they will find one way or another to um, have grounds to execute him. Uh, Chapter 11, cast your eyes to chapter 11, verse 18, because that verse sums up the tension of the last week of Jesus' life. Chapter 11, verse 18. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and they began to look for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. This is the last week. The leaders want him gone, but they can't touch him because he's very popular with the crowds. And especially at the temple, the people love Jesus. So they can't openly grab him and drag him away. They need to find some tricky, they need to find some connived, some sly way to have him killed. And so plotting, 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 they go away to the whiteboard and they come up with these three traps 
that they set one after each other to have Jesus executed. Um, the outline there, we're going to just see what the traps are, one, two, three, then we'll come back and listen to Jesus' response to them um, each time. But let's just get the overview first of all. What are the three traps? The first one, we're up to chapter 11, verse 27. 11, verse 27. It's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, the big grouping of the leadership. They come and they ask the question, verse 28, to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And they're talking probably about what we looked at last week, but it was one day earlier for them, when Jesus came into the temple and cast all the money changers out of the temple and declared this, uh, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. You have turned it into a den of robbers and so on. By what authority can you come to the temple and say that kind of thing? That's the trap. The trap is if Jesus says, well, my authority comes from God... They can go, aha, blasphemy, you're claiming to be from God and we secretly know you're not, so they can get him for blasphemy. If he says, my, my um, authority comes from humans, they can charge him for damaging the temple because he's just a human. And so that's the first trap. Their question is a double-edged sword. Whichever way he answers, they'll have grounds to get him. Let's fast forward. Uh, we'll, we'll jump over the answer for a second. Let's fast forward to trap number two. The second trap is chapter 12, so over the page. Uh, verse 13. This trap taps into the tension that the Jewish community experienced living under Roman rule that they experienced all through the first century. And there had been a debate going on for decades by Jesus' time as to whether Jewish people should use a Roman coin or any of the Roman coins, whether they should handle the Roman coins in day-to-day affairs. Because the Roman coins, like our coins, have an image, or they had the image of the king, the Caesar, on them. And so many Jews considered the coins to be um, a form of idolatry. Here's an image of the Caesar. Because it wasn't just the picture. Underneath the picture was an inscription that said that the Caesar was the son of God. And so should Jewish people, who believe there's only one God, should they even touch these sorts of coins? Now this debate had gone back and forward for decades, And then the Romans brought it to a climax because they're very smart and they brought in this new particular tax that could only be paid with a denarius, that's the Roman coin, forcing Jewish people to have to handle it and basically cave in. So the second question was this one, Jesus, do you think we should pay the tax or not? And it's brought up by a particular group of people and we'll we'll meet them um, in a moment but it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. And even these two groups, they're both Jewish, but they represent both sides of the debate. The Pharisees were very, they were the experts in Old Testament and they said, you should not touch the coins because it's idolatrous. The Herodians, they're Jewish too, but they were politically minded and they'd got used to running the country with the Romans. And they said, yes, yes, pay the tax. But here they are, two groups that are enemies usually come together to set the trap for Jesus because they both want Jesus gone. And here it is, verse 14, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Open up with flattery, it's always a good way to go. These buttery words are just there to try and get Jesus to drop his guard just for a second. Here's the the trap. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Now, if he says yes, then the Pharisees move in. Great, idolatry, we've got you. Death sentence, there you go. If he says no, the Herodians move in. Ah, treason, call the Romans. Here's someone saying don't pay the tax. Again, once again, it's a double-edged sword. Whichever way he lands, they have grounds to execute him. We'll come back to that one in a moment. Let's uh, go to the third trap. The third trap is set by the Sadducees, another group within the Jewish community. These were the priests. The high priest himself was a Sadducee, a member of this particular group. Mark gives us a little bit of insight into who they are and what they believe. Verse 18, chapter 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Here is a group of Jewish people that don't believe in the afterlife. And as my Sunday school teacher said as a way to remember, um, they don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. Uh, It's a joke from the 80s, there you go. Um, They don't believe in the resurrection, but their question is all about the resurrection. Again, it just completely shows their hypocrisy. They're trying to show how ridiculous it is for people like you and me to believe that there's life after this life. And their concocted um, scenario goes something like this. It's drawn straight out of Moses because they only believed in the five books of Moses, nothing that came after that. Their question comes from Moses. Uh, Moses had said that if um, a man and woman marry, but then the husband dies, it's the responsibility of the, the, the next brother in line to marry the woman and take care of her. Uh, that's if there's no children. And if he dies, then it's the third brother has to step up. If he dies, then the fourth brother and so on. That was Moses' law to make sure that the widow wasn't left um, without care. So their scenario is, well, what happens if a woman marries seven brothers in succession. She sort of has to marry them by law, one after the other. Okay, so there's seven husbands. And then she turns up in heaven. Which one of the brothers is she married to? That's the question. What happens when they all get to heaven? Now, I'm one of five boys. And I wonder if this was, you know, one of the passages that girls had in mind when they dumped my older brother, thinking, oh, if I marry him, then I have to marry all of them. Who knows? <laughs> But again, it's not a real question, it's a smokescreen. They're not interested in the answer because they don't even believe in the resurrection. We'll come back to Jesus' response in a moment. So here we go, three questions, three traps, three tests. One about authority, one about paying taxes, and then one of the which of the seven brothers is a woman married to in heaven. Uh, let's come back now and see how Jesus diffuses and actually uses each one of these as a platform to teach more about the kingdom of God. The first one about the authority, um, let's go, so we're tracking back to chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, verse 27 onwards. Whose authority, Jesus, do you think that you have to do all this in the temple and say that this is your house, a house of prayer and so forth? Uh, Jesus' response was to reverse the attack. To reverse the attack. That is to throw back onto the questioners a little double-edged sword for them. He said, okay, I'll give you an answer if you can first answer my question, which is, let's talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had come and gone already. He'd been killed by Herod. He'd had a very popular ministry of baptism right there near Jerusalem, very close to these events. And so Jesus says, you tell me about John the Baptist. Did his ministry come from heaven, from God, or was his ministry from men? Was it just man-made? Hmm. 
Now they're stuck. They sort of shuffle off, whisper, whisper, whisper. Let's think, if we say that it's from God, then now we're in trouble because we publicly um, denounce John. So we can't say it's from God. Hmm. If we say it's from men, then the people will, will, will turn against us because John was so popular and the people already decided John was a genuine prophet from God. And so now they're stuck and they shuffle back to Jesus. Um, we won't give you the answer. So they refuse to answer about John the Baptist and then Jesus gives them a dose of their own medicine and he says, well, I won't tell you about my own authority. You'll need to work it out for yourselves. Instead of answering openly, Jesus tells them this story, this famous parable. Uh, It's the one that begins in chapter 12. And it's an answer of sorts. It's just a little bit cloaked. The parable describes the man who planted a vineyard, took care of the vineyard, and then he went away, leaving the vineyard in the care of some tenants. Um, When harvest time comes, the owner sends a messenger to the vineyard to collect some of the fruit. But the people looking after the vineyard reject the messenger. So the owner sends another one and another one and another one. And each time the owners reject the messenger, they beat some up, they kill others. And last of all, the owner says, I'll send my son. Surely they'd respect my son. But when the son arrives, the tenants kill him too. Jesus' story finishes with the great question is, how would the owner respond Well, when the time comes, he will arrive, he will judge the wicked tenants and he will kill them. In the context of Jesus' whole ministry, it's a very pointed story. In the context of this question right here, it's a very pointed story. Jesus is saying, I am the son. And this parable sums up basically the whole Old Testament. God had rescued his people But he'd left his people under the care of the kings and the priests and the leaders. And every time God sent a messenger, a prophet, to come, the Old Testament narrative is that the prophets were rejected, one after each other. Some just put to the sidelines, others beaten up and others killed. And then finally God sent his son. And according to the story, the son will be killed as well. That quotation from Psalm 118, it's there in verse 10, sums up the story. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Psalm 118 was the same ancient song that the crowd sung when Jesus came in on the donkey a couple of days earlier. So the crowds were singing that, but that same psalm has this sting in the tail that Jesus will be not just the king, but he'll be a stone that the builders chuck out thinking he's not useful, we don't need him. And then God brings him back as the capstone for everything God is doing. Not just in the Bible, but everything God is doing in history. Jesus tossed out, but he will become, he has become the capstone. It's a promise and it's a warning. A promise and a warning. There is a deep, deep tragedy that the people of God, in such a personal way, 
can turn aside again and again and again the messengers of God and eventually God's only son. John's Gospel begins with those words, he came to his own but his own did not receive him. Even though Christ was rejected by the people, God doesn't throw him out. Now that's such a helpful thing for us, a helpful concept for us to remember even today because this um, attitude towards Jesus is still here. Toss him out. He's a, you know, the stone the builders reject. He's still being rejected today. By our world, by and large, Jesus has been rejected. But appearance and popularity are not the measure of Jesus' lordship. We at the moment live by faith and not by sight. It's because we are still in the era where humans can accept or reject Jesus. But a time will come when his true status as the capstone of everything God has done, as the central purpose of history, will be revealed in him. And so you can take heart if you count yourself as a member of this kingdom because he is the capstone, Jesus Christ, of everything God is doing in the world and everything in the kingdom to come. But if you're still wondering and weighing up the kingdom of God, then know as well that this story is saying that God has nothing left to give. He's got no one left to send to say, come back into God's family. God's got nothing up his sleeve that is not given yet to this world now that the Son has come. And so the question for the religious leaders is the one still for us, whose authority is Jesus acting on? That is the question of this chapter, it's the question of our day as well. By whose authority does Jesus come? Now those religious leaders, verse 12, they obviously know that this story is spoken against them because they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew the parable had been spoken against them. Let's jump to the next question on the taxes. Should we pay the taxes? Yes. Okay, Jesus is guilty of idolatry. No, he's guilty of treason. Which way is he going to go? Well, verse 15, chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus can see straight through their trap and into their hearts. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He says, bring me a denarius. Bring one of these coins. Let's take a look. Now, very strangely, they produce one. What does that show? They've got one there. They're actually handling this coin. They've got no problem bringing it out. Here you go, Jesus. Oops, we've got one. They're already using Caesar's money, but it's a visual illustration for Jesus' question. Whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. That's the inscription. The image on it, Caesar's face, The inscription indicates ownership. And so Jesus then goes on to teach two things. Well, one, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's his coin. We're in his empire. It's his money. He made the money. It's his system. It's his economy, his roads, his army, his aqueducts. You reap all the benefits from that, so give to Caesar what you owe him. Pay the tax. Jesus is teaching a proper respect and submission for governing authorities. Yes, God's in charge of the whole world, but God has put Caesar in his place and so give to Caesar what you owe him. 
Even if Caesar is a tyrannical, persecuting monster, submit to him because God has given him his place. And this is what the first Christians did. They lived, that early church, under the persecution of Nero and Domitian and Valerian and Caligula, but they always had a fine reputation for being good citizens. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But here's the flip side. The sting in the tail is the other part of verse 17, give to God what is God's. There is a limit to human authority. Uh, Yes, we give to Caesar what we owe him, But that only goes so far. Back in the first century, the one area where Christians were regularly disobedient was in refusing to worship the emperor because they believed that God alone deserves worship. And so the early Christians would not give to Caesar the things that belonged to God, their heart, their worship. And for that they were regularly persecuted. I think this little distinction here is such a helpful one for us even today. I think we get very good at giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. In fact, I think we get too good at giving to the world the things of the world and giving them more. We give to human establishments our trust and our dependence and our comfort and our love. We give our heart to the things of this world, our labours, our best years, our mind and our soul. We give it all to Caesar. Yes, we are to pay our taxes, obey our government, we are to respect our bosses, we are to work hard and work well and be good citizens. But we are not ever to let the human institutions of this world to occupy the parts of our heart that belong to God. The coin for the image of Caesar... Whose image do you bear? All humans are stamped with the image of God. We know that from Genesis 1, from Genesis Genesis 1 and 2. That we bear the image of God and even though we sin, we still bear the image of God. And so we belong to God. And we are to give to God our very selves, our very lives, our heart, soul, strength and mind. Yes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but don't cross the line and give to the world the things that belong to God. Perhaps a prayer like Psalm 139 can be really helpful here. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know if there's any anxious thoughts, and see, Lord, deep down in me if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me to the way everlasting. Clean my heart, so I might reserve my heart for you, Lord, and not give that to the world. Well, lastly, and much more quickly now, this strange scenario brought by the Sadducees who don't even believe in um, the life, life after death, and yet here is their question. Jesus' answer here is quite blunt. He accuses them of two basic errors. One, you guys do not know the Bible. That's your first mistake. Secondly, you underestimate the power of God. Jesus just moves right in and is very clear with them. Their question is based on completely false understanding of God and of the Bible, so it's a stupid question. But Jesus' response is stunningly simple. He goes back to Exodus, that's the one book or one of the few books that they actually accept. 
And he says, well, remember that the time when Jesus, uh, sorry, when God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, what did God say to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Jesus' response. The thing is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for 400 years before that moment. But God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they'd been dead for 400 years. What do we make of that? Well, we make of that that Jesus, uh, that God is not just the God of the living, but he is the God of the dead, because once they leave this world, they are alive in the presence of God, and they still live with him. And so there is an afterlife, and God is more powerful than you think. And Jesus doesn't even say which of the brothers this woman will be married to. It's a completely irrelevant and side point to the bigger picture that God is the God of the living, not the dead. And we can take great encouragement from that, those of us who are still coming to grips with people that we have lost, people who have passed beyond this life, and those who have died in Christ live with the Lord because he is the God of the living, not the dead. We can also remember just how Jesus deals with these guys. He doesn't say, look, you've got one opinion, here is my opinion. Where the scriptures have been clear and true, he simply says, you are badly mistaken. Your whole understanding of God is wrong and it needs to be corrected. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Now that's the three traps and the three questions, but we just really need to also take in this very last part because this is where it all comes together. And for a few moments, let's think about the one genuine question in this chapter. The one genuine question comes right at the end with this one man who's been listening to all of these and he steps forward at the end. This is from verse 28 down. He's been listening. So it's very wise. He listens first and then he asks. And he comes forward. He says to Jesus, well, Jesus, here's my one question. And this is a real one. Of all the commandments in the Old Testament, which is the most important? The Pharisees had calculated that there were 613 Old Testament laws. Which is number one? How do I bring them all together? And so Jesus' response is there in verse 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Secondly, love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus puts his finger on exactly the thing that all the other religious leaders had missed. That is, they were to love God. For all of their knowledge all of their busyness at the temple, all of their sacrificing, all of their teaching, all of their arguing, all of their debating, all of their robes, all of the money that flowed through the temple coffers, all of the pilgrims that came every year, they stopped loving God. And that's what God requires, that we love him. Earlier Jesus said, your lips, you honour me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And Jesus put his finger on it right here. It's what he required from them in chapter 11 and 12 and it's what he requires from us to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength 
and mind. Jesus put his finger on what they were missing. He's put his finger on what we're missing too. I mean, we can track all of these answers. We can follow the logic in, the, in this chapter. But when it comes down to it, we don't love God with all that we have. And so Jesus has also put his finger on why he's come. He came and he's into the final days of his life now to die for the people who don't keep this most important of all the commandments, to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind. But he did. And it's his love for God and it's his obedience to the second commandment, Jesus loving his neighbour, you and me, as himself, that led him to give his life up on the cross so that we might be flooded with forgiveness and the Holy Spirit so that we can love God in a way that's pleasing to him. We've had question, trap, answer all the way through, but this was a genuine question and for every genuine question, Jesus does give a real answer. We've watched the leaders marshal themselves, the Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, all rejecting Christ. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The question for us today is, Make sure we don't just hear the answers. Will you receive the Lord who provides the answers? So let's pray to him now. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you sent Jesus and he came with such wisdom and love and care and compassion that he could answer all of these traps and um, move through all of them and diffuse them but that he died for people who have even rejected him. And Lord, we pray for those of us here as we're still considering by what authority Jesus has come, that you will bring us clarity, help us to have the answers in our questions, uh, the, the questions in our minds answered, but help us to move far deeper than just intellectual knowledge, help us to come to Christ and to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind. Amen.